Unloose the goose. We'll take no use. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use. Unloose the goose. Greetings and salutations, fellow agorists and adventurers on planet Earth. Welcome back to Unloose the Goose. Today we have a special episode on communicating the values of freedom. And as you can see, we are a bunch of dudes. We've got John Bush, Sal Mayweather, Peter R. Quinones, and CJ Kilmer, and myself, Xavier Hawk, here to talk about and kind of dive into what it means to be living at this time and communicating the ideals of agorism and true liberty and true freedom um, to people who may or may not be, you know, down with the cause or educated about it. Would that be a good summary, my friends? Yeah. Sounds yeah. good to me. Cool. How to cool. effectively cool. communicate. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just start uh, going across the screen here and say uh, the first question would be, um, have you any actual like experiences dealing with people who don't know WTF is going on? And or um, like are uh, like on the other side of the aisle, let's say, who are complete clowns and or sheep and don't understand what what agorism really is about. And if so, why don't we start off with a story? So, uh, John, you want to you want to kick us off? Uh, well, just one thing. Uh, this is something I brought up in our little goose group chat. But as far as like tips on how to effectively communicate because we're all like missionaries and we're we're not just libertarians who appreciate the philosophy but we're all active in helping to educate and bring more people in the fray and it's my belief that if we want to more effectively do that then we ought not to use words like sheep <laughs> or covidiot or normie and i use them on my own but you know when you're talking with your friends and stuff but it it arouses a, a resentment and puts an immediate block and there's an air of uh, hubris to it. Right. And so that's just one of my things. You know, I, I had a long period where I was like that with other people and I realized it wasn't effective. I additionally had that with other libertarians. So whenever I got into agorism and anarchism and post-political activism, there was a period where I had my nose in the air at the political libertarians, and I would call them names and say they're wasting time. And I just realized that I was just being a jerk or coming off as a jerk, and so I tried to have a little bit more patience and compassion. And so I can't relate a specific story, but I do think like foundationally, in my opinion, some people are just fed up with it and done with the peons and the masses and and they're just over it. But uh, I think it's good to try to have compassion from where where everyone else is, because all five of us on this chat right now, Pete's doing a little air jerk off for the podcast audience. All five of us on this chat, I imagine, weren't born philosophical libertarians or didn't, you know, understand it our entire lives. So it's good to be patient with people. That's my two cents. Two Satoshi. Yeah. Do you have a story of how that went horribly wrong at one point? Not that I could think of off the top of my head at the moment. I okay. wish I did because stories are good for podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Sal, how about you? I, I agree with John. I think that's, that's really step one is you have to be polite, right? You can't – no one's going to take advice from somebody who's a, who's a dick to them, right? 
so that's that's step one. But um, otherwise, I think some tips that I, I – some things that I've done that have seemed to have worked well are, like, avoid ad hom attacks. <clears throat> Don't, like, whenever somebody does attack you with ad hom, I'll only respond to the part of the argument that isn't an insult. And, like, eventually, if you just keep doing that and they keep lobbing ad homs at you, eventually they have to take your argument seriously. So I think it's just, it's just you know, step one is just to be polite and to treat people with respect, and then that's, that's the only way you're going to get them to consider your opinion. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's any time that we have a discussion where it reverts to ad hominem, it, it just kind of devolves from there, right? How about you, Peter? I think the anonymity of social media is probably the worst facet of it. I think mm-hmm. when people, it's funny when any event I go to, I had events, the event I went to recently, I meet people that I've been interacting with online. And normally what I find is I meet people that I've only had positive interactions with right. people who are being completely negative and over, over the top online. They're not coming to these things. I mean, they're just basically trolling. Uh, they're not going to show their face in public. I've said some awful shit to people. And if people want to come to an event and ask me about it, I'll say it to their face. If I believe it's, if I believe it was right, if it was true. Um, but the anonymity of social media just, I mean, it's, it's something that's going to be written about. Books need to be written about, about it because it's basically the downfall of any kind of discourse. And if you're somebody who wants to see division, like myself, I'm not really worried about it. So yeah, it, it's interesting. The, the idea of social media showing our true selves, let's say. I don't know that it's supposedly, it's not necessarily our true selves, but that anonymity sort of gives people some sort of like inborn permission to be deplorable, right? To use a a, a familiar word. I think that uh, it does, like you said, it it breaks down discourse. Um, I think we'll have a lot of things to say from that uh, going forward here. How about you, CJ? Um, yeah, well, a lot of what's already been said has been great. Um, and I, I would add, you know, we all go through our individual character arc in our lives as we figure things out and figure out what we think about the world. And it's a very common thing for a a relatively new convert to any belief system to be really obnoxious and like super extra autistic about it. Right. <laughs> and to be trying to push it at people who are not interested or receptive at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think the longer that you're in a belief system and the more you've really tried to, you've really tried to test it by, by hammering it against counter arguments and exposing it, you know, exposing your ideas to, to people who disagree and whatever, the more you become comfortable and confident in your beliefs mm-hmm. and you're no longer defensive or aggressive, right? right. You're, you're relaxed and confident. Um, and you're more likely in, in that, in that maturity and wisdom, you're more likely to understand, you know, kind of when to push and when to, when to retreat. And, um, I've just found this in, in my own life because I, I teach history as a day job that, you know, I'm teaching hundreds of people every semester 
who mm-hmm. have all kinds of who knows what beliefs and whatever. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't mask my perspective. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, hide my point of view on things, but at the same time, um, I've tried to, to cultivate a, I don't know if the right, right term is soft sell in, in a way, but, but a, but a non, a, a non, like bludgeoning approach. The right. They, they probably get in all of their, you know, kind of typical progressive, um, classes that is most of what else they're taking in college, right? Yeah. And, and so, um, it seems to mostly, uh, work. I mean, I, I've, I've had a lot of students come up to me at the end of the semester, back when we had in-person classes and sort of say like, you know, this class really kind of affected how I think. Every now and then you get a student who, um, you know, has a negative reaction or whatever. But mm-hmm. in my experience with this sort of approach, it's relatively rare versus if I was just bludgeoning them brute force, trying to hammer my ideas into their skulls. Yeah. Um, it probably wouldn't work. It reminds me of something Jack said on the last episode, which was uh, instead of trying to convince others, why not just live those traits, live that, that free lifestyle, live that self-reliant lifestyle and then show up. And, and it might've been Nicole who said it too. It's like you, you radiate something different, you know, you radiate that, that new experience, that sort of liberty, right? You really feel libertarian, you feel mm-hmm. uh, free and people are like, what's different about that person? What they, and they want to find out it's better to be in that position to answer their curiosity than doing, I think we also mentioned that last episode, the MLM sort of like selling you on a ideology or way of living, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's it's the difference between push marketing versus pull, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so that's kind good. Of, we we pursue we pursue that which we pursue that which retreats from us mm-hmm. to a, to right. an extent, right? So yeah. sometimes I tell my students like, hey, don't read this book over here that I'm I'm mentioning to you, uh, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. bad. If you read it, you're a bad American. You're a bad person. Yeah, uh, that works a lot with younger folks too, right? Like they 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 sort of have this rebellious nature because everything they're fed is just nonsense, and then they want to find out the truth, right? Um, there's a yeah. there's a book by uh, David Friedman called Machinery of Freedom, and he mm-hmm. lays out some nice anarchist philosophy and some practical what things could look like. But he talks about education, and he says one way to educate is through books and lectures and podcasts. Another more effective way is through showing and demonstration. And so I think that's kind of what y'all are riffing on just because a lot, everyone's like anarchy doesn't work. When, when did that ever work? How could it work? And I always like to point out uh cryptocurrency and mm-hmm. Bitcoin blockchain. Like it's literally anarchy in action. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, it's like being leveraged by the state and intelligence agencies and contact tracing and stuff. But in essence, cryptocurrency, there's no central authority. There's no hierarchy. There's no coercion. So it's literally anarchy in action. You can point to something concrete and then people will more readily accept that it is possible yeah one of the challenges that i'm finding is living that i am very much like an outspoken proponent for freedom liberty and you know i go out of my way to elucidate better ways of living um i don't have a podcast like each one of you guys but i do uh, take part in a lot of podcasts and i do activate myself in public right like if i go to a store and somebody says no, you have to wear a mask. Like I will, I can't let that go. I have to have a discussion with them in real time about it. You know, yeah. it caused me a great deal of consternation. I am on the board of my children's school and it is a very, the, the whole thing is based on Rudolf Steiner and anthroposophy, the philosophy of freedom, right? 
And the, the whole premise of the education uh, pedagogy is to get those students to embody, feel good and confident in themselves, to critically analyze the world around them and step and walk in such a way that they are embodying and living in liberty and honoring the soul and honoring life. And they are mandating masks. And I'm like having this discussion with them and all I'm getting is refutable science and and we want to help people we want to show that we're compassionate but really the core of it is a fear of litigation if yeah. we don't wear masks and somebody gets sick then we're open for lawsuit what what do you think about that yeah that's a tricky one you there's like this balance between you know it's your kid's school so you want to have a level of decorum and not go off the rails, but at the same time, something like the kids being put in masks, your children being put in masks is really critically important. I guess that's a circumstance where you, you know, if you're a really good persuader and, and the opportunities there, then that's something to really push for. But at the same time, there's a lot of different values that are, that are in play. Um, that's a tough one. So what's going on? Are your kids still going? Are you, are you pulling them out or what's the, what's happening? Uh, I am, I'm considering pulling them out, but it, it also goes to, to my wife who's like, why are you being so divisive? And it's like, what do you mean? Like, how is that divisive to stand up for what you believe in? Yeah. Peter, it's what important. do you think? I mean, it's in those situations, I assume it's a government school. Mm-mm. It's private. a private school, bro. Get them out. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to I went to Catholic school for high school, and I mean, it's sort of a private education. But I mean, there was still so much government control over it. I mean, what can you do? Yeah, and even in Florida, they removed the mask mandate. So it's like I think this is like super mm. critical right now. Like this is the discussion, right? Like I posted earlier something to the effect of, uh, if you wondered what you'd be doing in 1930s Germany, you know. You've got your answer right now, you know. Yeah, everybody's complying. I I feel blessed. My kids also go to the private school, but the school director's totally with it, and there's right. no semblance of going to be a mask thing. You know, um, this brings up a tip that I have for folks. I was a big uh, proponent of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. Um, that really played a big role in my development as a communicator and persuader. Uh, it's a great work. My Criticism is that he like idealizes the Carnegies and all these guys as big evil, you know, cartel capitalists. Right. New term I realized. Although they ought to be emulated if you want to build an empire or be successful. They're very successful people. But one of the biggest uh, tips that stuck out to me was to speak in terms of other people's interests. Mm hmm. Right. So figure out what it is that people what motivates people, what they want. And in this particular example is why it came to mind. So in trying to persuade them, if you recognize that perhaps their biggest need or desire or concern in this situation isn't freedom. Right. Or slowing down the technocracy and sticking it to the Illuminati or whatever, like some of us may think. But it's a concern for litigation. So speak in terms of their interest, maybe there's some avenues, maybe there's some precedent. There's not a lot of precedent now because it's new. I know that that was one of the things that they were talking about with 
this new relief package they want to push through is they want to give liability protection for businesses that send their workforce back, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. So that's, that's just a good tip for folks. So in this particular circumstance, they're concerned with liability. So I'd be curious if there's any way to speak in terms of that or if there's any opportunity for them to feel, be made to feel more comfortable. Yeah. Sal, when you're out in public and, you know, seeing people that are wearing masks and or, you know, complying with the state in different ways, like how do you address it in your day to day? I ignore them. I walk right past them. Uh, I don't I, I think that like, you know, like I think you quoted Jack from last episode, you have to sort of lead by example. So I, I don't wear the mask when I'm out in public. I don't wear it at the grocery store. Um I think so far I had to wear it once. So I had to take my cat to the vet. That was the only time I actually had to wear it. Right. Uh, so, so far I've been pretty good. I, I, I really do believe in leading by example. I don't think that's the, I don't, I don't think you can just sort of tell people what they should do and then do the opposite. So I do the best I can. I, I, I try not to wear it as much as possible, but, um, you know, also I think it's all, it's also about knowing your audience and, you know, knowing how to speak to people. So you're not going to, you're not going to convince like an AOC supporter that they shouldn't be wearing a mask, right? That's just, that's out of the question. So you're just, you're just wasting air by, by going down that road. Uh, So know your audience, but also like know, know how to speak to people. Um, There's this great little book by uh, Drew Weston, who's a neuroscientist from Emory University in Georgia. And it's an older book. He's, he's definitely not on our team, right? This guy's like, uh, I think he was like an advisor for John Kerry or Barack Obama or something, but uh, he he breaks down in the book um, the difference between the, the liberals and conservatives, leftists and rightists, but he does it from a neuroscientific standpoint. And the, the ultimate conclusion that he comes to is that the, the main difference is that rightists tend to value fairness, whereas leftists tend to value compassion and like independence and moderates, some, they sort of fall in the middle. So know, like, you know, who you're dealing with and how to speak to them. Check out that book, though, because there's also some great tips in there. But, again, at the end of the day, you really have to uh, you have to lead by example. CJ, how are you doing that when you mentioned like your students, you know, you'll just drop little tidbits or even like warn them against things. Um, Let's say outside of the school, outside of the school setting, Uh, you're out in public and. You're, you're, you're being asked to, to put on a mask. How, how are you dealing with that at this time? Um, I'm, I'm generally just taking the gray man approach. I refuse to wear a mask in situations where I think it's ridiculous and absurd. Um, you know, if I'm going into a, a private business and there's people in close quarters and the business is saying wear a mask, I just, you know, I pick my battles. Right. And that's not, you know, the hill I'm going to die on. Now I, I'll tell you if they start, you know, Florida hasn't done this, but I know some other states have. If they, whether it's the state or the feds or whoever, if they start um, making mask mandates that are, you know, you have to wear it all the time when you're outside of your house. And even if you're riding a bike by yourself out in an open field and whatever, like, <laughs> fuck that, right? Right. But, um, you know, to me, it's, I, I pick my battles. And if I'm going into a little private business and they have a little please wear a mask or whatever i put a mask on yeah 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 i i have i've put on a mask like my daughter wanted to go to an art gallery 
and this was in Asheville, North Carolina. And they are all terrified up there. And if you don't wear a mask, you are a sociopath and you don't care about people and you want everybody to die that's over 65, right? It's just like there's, there's, yeah, that all true. Yeah. Described Pete perfect, Peter. Yeah. There there is zero like middle ground, right? And it's sort of like, Everything's become so polarized now. It's like if you think any one of Trump's policies are good, that means you hate LGBTQ and want to like, you know, you're a fascist. Yeah. And a racist. And there's like no middle ground. I've gotten to I've gotten to the point where when somebody like somebody yesterday posted some commie on Twitter posted Rothbard. Just like that one quote when he's talking about children where he says in a free market, um, in a libertarian order, there would be a thriving free market for children. Right. And, and I was like, and somebody tagged me in it to say, look what this guy wrote. And I was like, I'm just going to take it even further based. And I just typed based under it. And the guy's like, really? And I'm like, I'm somebody who's witnessed Ceausescu, the, the result of Ceausescu's orphanages in Romania firsthand. Mm-hmm. The free market would handle this much better. You're trying to make it about, and I told him you're trying to make it about pedophilia because that's what you have on your heart. Oh, right. got him. What does based mean? <laughs> I don't know. Is that a is that a internet term? I don't know what that means. It means you agree, I, I presume. Yeah, it's just like it's just like. Uh, he nailed it, knocked it out of the park. Oh, okay. you know, I mean, but, but to the nth, de- but to the nth degree. Okay. That's a new one for me too. I'm going to use that like, one. Yeah. yeah. Hey, look at what a disaster all of like the foster homes and the, the children's youth services are and how many scandals and like the, the horror stories that come out of all of these like state youth groups and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. At least in a, if, the, if there was a Rothbardian flourishing free market of children, you, you know, you'd, where you'd have to pay, you would ensure that the children are only going to the most qualified parents and the most qualified and stable families that are going to give them the best another, upbringing possible. Yeah. That, that, could, be, that, really could, be another, that could be another episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it brings up, it brings up a good point though, because there's like two approaches that you can take in trying to wake people up to the philosophy of liberty. One of them is the like provocative and cap. I forget who it was. One of these intellectual thinkers wrote a book. Is it the Bourbon book? But it's it's deliberately the focus is to go after those provocative topics in a free society. I forget who it is. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was Jeffrey Tucker. He like sort that, of purposefully poked the bear. Yeah, he literally decided to go after the controversial topics that make libertarians look a little extreme or lacking compassion, right? A road. One approach where it's like 110% and what you see is what you get. This is raw freedom. This is what it looks like or could look like. It could be ugly. There could still be some harm or some undesirable things or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just like legalize heroin, right? I remember Ron Paul in one of the debates are like, Mr. Paul, Dr. Paul, isn't it true that you've once advocated for the legalization of heroin? And he was like, well, of course, if heroin was legalized tomorrow, would you be shooting up heroin in a back alley all of a sudden? But so that's one approach. The other approach is to try to soft pedal, you know, like the libertarian party wants to be conservative light rather than mm-hmm. throwing out the radical consistent message of liberty. And so Actually, they want to, they want to be woke left now. So no, yeah, that's the new thing. They're all over the place. I, I think there's a distinction between what you're saying and how you're saying it in the sense that you can, you can project a very radical message, but in a way, that is smooth and non non threatening, yeah. and that doesn't cause 
what a psychologist would call the backfire effect, right? Where you hammer someone with contradictory ideas, even if it's all like footnoted with perfect evidence, whatever, but it causes a backfire effect. It causes people's defenses to go up and they double down on their beliefs after you've just given them a mountain of evidence yeah. showing that it's wrong, right? That's and so, so there's a difference between what the message is versus how you're, you're getting it across, right? And I think that you can, you can shake someone's paradigm mm-hmm. with a radical message in a way that doesn't cause their defenses to go up. And I also think you can bludgeon someone with a really blunt radical message if you've already built some amount of rapport with them. Right? I think that's the key it, right there is the rapport because I, a lot of people don't make decisions based on rationale or reason. They make their decisions based on where are all the other humans going and what do they all think and, you know, I want to be okay, right? There's this, this fundamental insecurity that many people have. I don't think anybody on this panel has, but that they want to be accepted and or um, not targeted. I mean, I get the gray man approach out, out, you know, out in the public and all of that. But at some fundamental level, we are all confident in our assertions. We are confident in our beliefs. And somebody um, providing us with actual factual evidence would, would make any one of us pause and be like, wait a minute. OK, let me look at that. But for the general masses, I don't see that as like the, the motivating factor, because if you bring the evidence like, you know, viruses are this many microns and a cloth mask only stops this many microns, you know, and you're wearing a chain link fence. It's like, but I heard all of these news articles saying this, and why are you not compassionate for all these other people? And it's like, but that has nothing to do with reality. So how do you couch? Then I think you're trying to get to that. How do you couch those facts? And I think that's the purpose of this discussion. How do we couch those facts and logic in such a way that it makes the other people comfortable to be able to even look at it. You know, do you have to be like, this is what, put it on a t-shirt. This is what the cool uh, kids are thinking. You know what I mean? Have a celebrity say it. Right. I think it's um, one thing I realized early on in my activism career when the same thing kind of was brought up, like we were talking about a second ago, I was in the Ron Paul movement and I was also a 9-11 truther because that's where I got my start. And there was this whole hush, hush. We can't like I was the Students for Liberty held a conference in Austin and I was considered as a speaker, but they turned me down because I was a 9-11 truther. Ah. Hush, hush. And so there's this provocative. But I realized we don't need to tailor our message to appeal to the masses. Mm-mm. Just the same like CJ was saying, there's a lot of people and you were saying, Hawk, that a lot of people, you can present them with a rational, well thought out argument in a nice, soft, benign way, but they're going to reject it because their predisposition is against all of that. And they're already uh, invested in believing that it's real because they've been such fools like all of us wearing masks and doing early stuff and, and complying with the lockdown. But what I realize is that there's enough of us that think the way that we do that if we were to shift our focus from waking more people up and swelling the ranks while it's still important to organizing ourselves and opting out and participating in counter economics, for example, I think there's enough of us to already get things done. And yeah. so. Maybe it's not even necessary to spend so much of our time beating our head against the wall to try to wake up a Democrat, for example, when we could spend more time uh, coalescing and growing our strength with those that are already initiated. Yeah, building our own economy, essentially, you know, getting some vitality in the organization of the, all these people who are all over wondering what the F, what do we do? 
I think I think you I think you just hit the nail on the head, John. I'm not sure it really matters that we convince people mm-hmm. of, of the philosophy of freedom, right? Like it doesn't really matter if we convince them to use Bitcoin. Eventually, they're going to be economic forces will will persuade them into into moving out of fiat currency and towards sound money. It doesn't matter really if we convince them about the utility of 3D printing because as gun laws become more oppressive and more restrictive they're going to be forced into those sorts of solutions into like the counter economy. So I'm not really sure it matters that we convince them. I think that the technology and, and the counter economic aspects will sort of speak for themselves. Right on. Yeah. There's uh, this guy, Dan Kennedy, who's one of my gurus as far as entrepreneurship. I got Grant Cardone, Russell Brunson, who does funnel stuff. Yeah. And this guy, Dan Kennedy's old school direct marketing advertising guy. And he says there's three elements to successful advertising or marketing. There's message, market, and media. So the message is what you say. The market is who you say it to. And the media is what vehicle you use to convey it. And I think oftentimes we spend so much time speaking to the wrong market altogether. We're missed, like we're selling pain relief products to the guy that's in the best shape of his life and doesn't have anything to do with pain, just the same, right? Or we're selling liberty or trying to sell liberty to somebody that really appreciates the big government and the role that it plays in their lives. And so I think we would save ourselves a lot of headache if we made sure that we are on point with our market, people that are ready and willing to hear. And oftentimes those people are on the fringes of the mainstream society. There were like Democrats or Republicans. They're pretty normal people but they're starting to get fed up and disillusioned. And that's where we can pick off from the Yeah. Okay. So I got a great question for you guys and we'll start with CJ. Um, since you haven't spoken for a minute, do you think that now that the media has been shown to essentially be a tabloid propaganda arm of this, you know, the, the globalists, let's say, um, that everybody's seeing through the lies and, and do you think that there is, uh, going to be or already is, a backlash into the, to the, where people get their news from or whether they think for themselves more so than what they're, they're fed? I think there's an opportunity for a certain percentage. Mm-hmm. But, um, one of the things I've become convinced about from studying history for like decades, it's really yeah. kind of sad, is awesome. that, yeah, most of the people in most times and places are just kind of ballast mm. in the sense that they're not really ideological. Mm-hmm. They're not really interested in, in ideologies and in intellectual consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, you know, going through and, you know, some of them are basically good people, right? But they're just, you know, going kind of Absolutely. through their business yeah. and they're, they're just kind of going with the flow. Right. Yeah. And like so where the wind blows. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you look back at something like the American Revolution, right, which, you know, has all of its flaws and shortcomings and didn't go far enough, or whatever. Yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, we don't have scientific polling data, but most of the people who were observing it and writing about it said a, it was a small percentage of the people that were really like gung ho for independence and all that. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then a certain percentage were, were Tories. And then most people were just kind of going with the flow, you know, and they sort yeah. of went whichever way the wind was blowing and whoever seemed to be winning. They were just trying to get their food, trying to yeah. grow. Yeah. 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 Trying and, to live. And, and, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind just in terms of 
the idea of, of being strategic and efficient yeah. and choosing your battles and all that, you know, that, um, it's like that old, that old essay. Was it Albert J. Nock, Isaiah's job? That's a good right? one. Right. Yeah. Where, where he kind of says like, you're not, you're not talking to everybody. You're talking to the small percentage who are the remnant. Exactly. Yeah. Receptive to what you're Peter's saying. Peter's got something. Go ahead, Pete. And there's a remnant inside the remnant. Yeah. Um, on this podcast, I, I can have as much as a 2000 download per episode difference. If I'm talking, if I have Dave Smith on to talk about the culture wars, blow up. If I have a historian on to like go over like, Eight, the war, you know, CJ is right there. So, but if I have like, um, Danny Scherzen, who's a military historian taught at West Point, there'll be 2000 less downloads. Wow. I mean, even with, even within the quote unquote, and I hate this term so much, liberty community, mm. liberty movement, there's a remnant. There's people in the movement who, I mean, literally, and as somebody who shares memes, there are people who only know anything about libertarianism from memes. That's right. there. They don't, they've never read a book. Right. You know, they, they don't, uh, you, oh, you, I've been following your account for three years. You have a podcast? No, only 485 episodes. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, what, they, they don't care. They're online. They're just, ha- they're having a good time. I mean, they're just, it's just all bullshit. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and that's just the culture at hand. If we think, I mean, I abandoned a long time ago and, and it's really embarrassing to admit that I actually thought that, you know, you had to get like over 50% of the people to believe like you believe. That's just so fucking retarded to (laughs) think that it's not even going to be, I mean, it's going to be percentages. That's why that. And then when you watch the, and anyone who doesn't agree with me on this, then you just haven't been paying attention the last eight months because well, the last eight months has given you a microcosm of the whole of hu- uh, the whole of history and how most people don't want liberty. They want to be safe and they don't mm-hmm. care how many, they don't care how much freedom they have to give up in order to get it. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that's a genetic thing? Hmm. That's a good question. That's a good question. Well, I don't know. If you just look back, for example, at the Russian Revolution, like the Bolshevik one, right? Not the, not oh, the first one. Yeah. Look at what percentage of Russian people actually were Bolshevik communists. It's like almost nobody. Yeah. Right? It was 500. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was, it was about as many Antifa like, people as there are. Like one block, one square block in Petrograd. You know? right. right. And, and they were able to do it. Now, now granted, there's a difference with that philosophy because that philosophy is fixated on, you know, soci- sociopathic power grabbing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's different from what we're pushing, right? So they were totally happy to take over whatever they needed to take over and kill whoever they needed to kill, right? But still the principle of, um, it brings to mind, there's a, there's a famous Sam Adams quote actually, where he says something like, it doesn't take a majority to prevail, but a, a minority keen on setting brush fires in the hearts of men, right? That's not a perfect yeah. quote, but it's pretty, pretty close to what he said. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, if you look at history, it's like radical minorities that mostly push 
events while most you're people not, kind of go with the minorities. Just to be clear, you're talking about ideological minorities. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You're talking about like the Bolsheviks and, and the, the communist sort of ideoc- ideology that, that took over and killed 60 million people well, in Russia. Right. Or, or to take a slightly, you know, less horrific example, like the Sons of Liberty in colonial Boston, right? Who, you know, weren't most people in Boston. What's that, Sal? Where the term three percenter comes from. It was the idea that only you only need three percent of the country to rise up and you can overthrow the government. Yeah. And the, the thing in my observation would be like the liberty minded folks um, aren't proactive in a- expanding their ideology. They're more interested in living it. Right. Like 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 what Jack and John and we, what we've all said is like when we're living it, we're not out there marketing it. You know, the evangelical ones at least say that again. The consistent ones, at least, there are some people in the liberty world who, uh, you know, spend their time canvassing neighborhoods and working phone banks for political. Oh, Joe. The consistent ones are out there taking direct action. Yeah, yeah, and and it it, it it's sort of like the reason why evangelical Christian Christianity has succeeded so much is because I mean, even before evangelical Christianity, you got the Catholic church forcing people. They had expansion in mind. They had conversion in mind. I don't think any of us here are out like evangelicalizing or trying to convert people. We are mostly looking for our, 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 our ideological family. Right. Um, and so it, it comes to this, this question of communication, you know, is it better to sit back, and wait to 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 go to battle, let's say, with the, the the despots of the left and the right, or is it better to be proactive and evangelicalize, or I don't even know if I'm saying that right, evangelize, um, you know, to to grow the movement? What do you think, John? I think that we need a diversity of tactics, and so for some people, they enjoy putting out a podcast or knocking on doors or sign waving. Other people want to do more agorism or live more free. And so I think that it benefits us that we go out and try to recruit more people and pick off the people on the fringes of the mainstream to swell the ranks of the agorist cadre. Um, however, if that's all everyone did, then we would be doing ourselves a disservice. So I think more important, in my opinion, because I believe that you can't have one. With, if you only do one, then you're going to be unsuccessful. If you only do the other, the agorism, then you still can find success. More importantly, I think that we ought to spend more of our time figuring out how to live free, how to navigate freedom in an unfree world. And then the beauty is the synergy, which we've been talking about. I think that's my big takeaway from this episode, that the best way to communicate is to show people. And so Jack Spierko does a great job of going out and showing his fishing. Jack's not here, but he's like here. We keep bringing him up, showing his pond and his permaculture projects, right? Me and my ex-wife did a project called Sovereign Living, where we lived on a a two-and-a-half-acre farmstead, and we produced this pretty high-quality reality show um, of us trying to get off grid and grow our goals and deal with the neighbors across the street without relying on the police because they were neglecting their dog and stuff like that. So I think a good tactic for people that are doing, like Sal was talking about, doing the agorism and being consistent is to show people because there's also people that are just liberty-minded, libertarians, small L, big L, that don't know how to opt out or don't know that they can trade crypto through a coin mixer and have it be totally anonymous or, you know, we need to show people and kind of help them to evolve into more radical spaces. 
Who's who's yeah. done more for like to promote sound money? Every book written by Jim Rickers and Peter Schiff or Satoshi Nakamoto, right? Yeah. Like, who who's done more to secure gun rights for everybody? Every you know, every dollar donated to the NRA, every phone call that they've made, or uh, you know, Cody, Cody Wilson, Wilson and, and Ivan the Troll and, and the work that they've done with 3D printing and stuff like that. So it really comes down to direct action. People are going to follow you if they're going to. They're going to respect your ideas if they if you show them that they work rather than it's just all hot air. Right. You actually have to be active and doing it. Exactly. Walking. Proving walk. it. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of the stuff is new and fresh. It's like okay. printing guns and stuff. That's pretty new phenomenon. It needs to be proven out. Same thing with cryptocurrency. It was originally just a bunch of like, cyber geeks that were like, well, let's try this internet money out. Let's, let's give it a test. And then it took on a life of its own. So people got to be willing to get their hands dirty. And as a curious aside, as, as a curious aside, I, you know, sometimes beat myself up for not launching, uh, Firon when it was called Permacredits in 2015. Um, because we would have raised a, sh- a shit ton of money just because of the excitement, right? But the tech wasn't ready. Um, I don't think the population was ready. And I'm like looking at things now and I'm like, this is like the perfect time to launch. Um, but a- anyway, Peter, did you want to speak to that, that previous thing? We've got a question on the, on the, uh, on the chat that's actually pretty good. What, I'll do the question. Okay. So the question was, how would you market a community for rich preppers? Or really, like, how would we communicate this new lifestyle? Let's say we built uh, the perfect libertarian utopia. How would you market it? Would you have to? No, it would probably sell out within the first, you know, opening. But uh, let's say you want to. I mean, they they marketed a potential libertarian utopia. Anarchopia or whatever. In in Lieberland. (laughs) And, like, people were paying for passports. Yeah. Or Galt's Gulch. Everybody yeah, bought into that and ended up being a, a bust. Oh, that was a total bust. I, I, I don't know. I mean, respect and all, but like I knew that when <laughs> I saw it. What about that you, CJ? How would you market a libertarian utopia? I would just, I would put like political sounding stuff out of the marketing mm-hmm. and focus more on don't you just want to live your life? Like I'm, I'm someone who wants most of life to not be political, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, we can't, like, I, I hate that politics has invaded almost everything, right? Used to be we had sports and weather at least, but mm. now that's political, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I would market it from the perspective of, don't you want politics to just not matter and not be a thing? Mm-hmm. And you just, you know... You take care of your family and you hang out with your friends and you run your business and that's it. Yeah. That's my answer. Left alone. I think also speaking to that, um, when you're marketing something or selling something, it's important not to sell the product or even the features, but first to sell the benefits, what problem you're going to solve, what life will be like, what will be fulfilled. So, some good keywords would obviously be freedom, calmness, tranquility, relaxing, not having to worry. Selling the sizzle, not the steak. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. an important distinction I think a lot of people should follow. I've got a good answer for this, but I want to hear Sal first, and then and then I'll, I'll say something I think might be counterintuitive, but might be pretty cool. So go ahead, Sal. I agree with Pete. I don't think you really should. I don't really think you, you, you'd have to sell it. Um, right. 
once people see that, you know, in the libertarian utopia, the police won't murder your children, well, it's a pretty easy sell then. You're not going to go <laughs> to please the public police. Right. You know? Yeah, but then you'll get all, a whole bunch of BLM activists who don't want, you know, right. <laughs> a police station. So I was thinking is don't market it at all, like you said, Peter, but even more so make it exclusive and sort of like secret. You know, like there's this club in San Francisco called The Battery, right? And there's only so many memberships allowed a year or whatever. And the only way you can get a membership is if a member invites you in and every member gets two memberships that they can give out. So the way that they worked it is like this micro economy now where it's like they it's so exclusive. It's so high end that, you know, they, they don't let anybody in. But like that's where everybody who's cool or, you know, hot to trot or, you know, fucking launching the next big thing in Silicon Valley where they go and hang out. And what they do with their micro economy is like, I'll give you, John, a membership, but you have to give me one back. You know, so like you get to be a member and now you have one membership that you can share with somebody else. But I get my membership back. So, so that I can choose somebody else. So there's like this social hierarchy that of who get there first kind of thing. And that sort of exclusivity is really appeal. It's kind of like what you were saying, CJ, earlier. It's like, don't look over here. You know, you don't want to be part of that group. Right. And the kids are like, well, now I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Don't read this book because you're a bad American. <laughs> don't don't come join this community. We don't really want your we don't want you. Right, right, and yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, there, there's something there in that, and and I don't know how. Again, if it's a genetic thing or whatever, but there are like the 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 people that you want involved with your organizations. Let's say, like, you know, John, you've got the the freedom cells. It's like you don't want just any old schmo in there. You want people who are going to be active, who are you know mm. contributing, who are like-minded already. And it's almost like by putting up a barrier to entry and making yeah. it a little bit more exclusive, it's like well, why are you saying no to me then? You know, like, what do you got? Right. And this is That's, a lesson I've learned in business. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, there, there's a concept of having your dream customers. This is something Russell Brunson who does click right. funnels and funnels. You want to have dream ideal customers and you create like an ideal customer avatar or whatever. But for me with Kratom, I started my biggest initial marketing push was on the Tom Woods show like over a year ago. And then I was on Jack Spearco shortly after that. And I've been on Pete's show and Derek Bro's Conscious Resistance. So literally a significant majority of my customers are anarchist libertarian preppers. And so yeah. I'll call them up. I try to follow up with as many customers as I can. And they'll be like, oh my God, I loved your podcast the other day. Or they'll be like, hey, I had a question about the Kratom. By the way, I just joined the Freedom Cells website. It's great to be involved with the network. And so right. it's perfect. And then if they have an issue, I'm not like, oh, begrudgingly going to help. Not that I would if it was just the general public, but it's like, these are my crew. This is my community. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that they're taken care of because we're part of the same network. You know, I think I'm super duper lucky and privileged, but that's how I set it up, you know, yeah. in business. You don't want to just... You know, imagine like a progressive customer that's all nitpicky and wanting to control every aspect of everyone else's lives. They're probably going to be the same way when you come into a customer service situation, you know? Right, right. And, and so you, you have an ideological base already of like-minded individuals. It's like, how do you organize that? Yeah, they're great to do business with. Yeah, that's great. Pete, what about you in terms of, um, you know, your podcast and how you kind of come up? in communicating these, these messages. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Probably just out of hubris. Yeah. Uh, thought I th 
think I know more than everyone else. So we started a podcast and like the first 14 or 15 episodes was just really basics of libertarianism, volunteerism kind of thing. And then I just got into doing interviews and most of the interviews that I did were. This is you interviewing others, right? Yeah, this is me interviewing others. And I wanted to learn stuff. So I'd have an expert on this come on, an expert on that come on. Um, now I've taken it to the point where, I mean, I can go three or four episodes where there is nothing libertarian even I even talk about. It's just I might talk about philosophy or I might talk about whatever. Right. You know, I just, yeah, I'm, they, I'm doing it now just for out of the love of it, out of the love of knowledge. You know? yeah. And um, people want to come along for the ride. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, every once in a while, I'll do something where, yeah, I'm going to, if something in the culture really strikes me, then I'll have someone to come on and talk about the culture and everything like that. But it's not something I jump to. Um, I'd rather, uh, yeah, I'd rather talk about the, the history of the idea of hegemony and where it came from and do a whole episode on that with a friend of mine, then have a discussion about the non-aggression principle for the 15,000th libertarian podcast episode. Right. Yeah. And when did your podcast start? July of 2017. Nice. That's a good run. That is a good run. And it, it goes to what we were saying earlier, you know, light the fire and then your people will come. Right. Um, make a big enough noise in the right frequency and those people will be attracted to it. And you, you kind of like get the people that are there for the basic, like libertarianism. Right. But then now that you're going into all of these other subjects, it's like you're bringing them along, like you said, for the ride and it's stuff that they're opening up to, you know, so it's almost like what I'm getting from this conversation already is that. Uh, you know, we don't need to go out and prosthetize and like evangelize these things. We live our thing. And then those who are attracted to that initial frequency will come along for the other stuff. And so we're able to like educate them deeper into it. Sal, has that been your experience? Yeah, no, I I, I agree a hundred percent. I think, I also think there's like a certain value in in maintaining a, a purity of principle, right? People will respect that if they see that you're, uh, sort of a consistent approach to your philosophy. So, you know, I, I agree with everything you guys said. I, the only thing I would add is that it's important to, uh, even when it's unpopular, always maintain like the, the, the pure approach because then people will, uh, they're going to learn to respect not, not just the sort of the, the community or the sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like the, the connotations surrounding your movement, but they'll actually respect the principle that sort of undergirds all of it. That's yeah. good. Yes. I have a question for y'all. Go ahead. Somebody John. else has something to riff on that. What do y'all think about the word anarchist or anarchy or anarchism? I personally like it because it's provocative, but it does have a lot of baggage, especially with the Antifa stuff and, and right. you know, throwing bricks through window with a black hood kind of deal. So what do you guys think about using the term anarchism or identifying as an anarchist? Anybody mind if I go first on that one? Because I just read that whole thing about Whitmere and that there are these guys like trying to kidnap her. Oh, and yeah. it turns out that they were trying FBI to FBI plot. Yeah. 
I, I, it's, it smells of COINTELPRO FBI setup, right? Um, but that evidently they were trying to do that for somebody in Virginia, one of the governors in Virginia as well. Um, and they are anarchists and they got the big flag in the back, anarchists. And, um, but they can't pin down whether they're Trump supporters because some of them are never Trumpers. Some of them are BLM. Some of them are not. It's like this weird <laughs> amalgamation of just anarchists. People. Right. Yeah. Just people, right? But it, like the media supporting anarchists. Right. The, the, exactly, yeah. The, the media spun it as like these right wing guys and they were completely not, you know, um, completely not into that at all. And, and so that that whole thing died out from the media real quick. And my initial my initial reading of it was like, ah, this, like anarchists, you know, it's like. And meanwhile, we all know Jack. We all know each other. We all know that we ascribe to those principles, but we are generally like uh, good, decent human beings who can get along well with others, right? Um, the, but the, the 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 public perception of an anarchist is like Mad Max, freaking throwing bricks through windows, like you said. So it, I don't like the term, although I ascribe to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was well, yeah. always like hesitant. To, to assume the moniker anarchist. And then uh, I remember I was listening, to, this is years ago, I was listening to an episode of the Tom Woods show, and he, I was like a big history nerd, and um, he mentioned this guy named Ralph Rako, this historian. So I, I ended up reading a little bit of Rako and watching some of his YouTube lectures, and he's like this like elderly, like older grandfatherly sort of dude, and he's like comes across as very amiable and very friendly. And I start to think to myself, man, if this guy could be an anarchist, then why the hell can't I? Who cares if they think you're crazy? This guy clearly isn't crazy. And then, of course, you know, you look up Murray Rothbard and Leonard Legio and all a lot of these, you know, that of that other crew of right. circle of folks right there, and it sort of takes away the the uh, the nastiness of the term. Do you have something to say, about CJ? I, I, I guess it's, you know, you always run into the, to the trouble of terminology. It's the same thing with the word capitalist. It's like, no. what does it mean? What do people think it means? Right. Right. And, and so with these sorts of words, I come to the same place I come with a lot of things, which is, um, it kind of depends on context mm. and use them strategically. Uh, like if you're talking to people that you think, have a view that anarchists are all a bunch of antifers out there, you know, burning down businesses or whatever, then I, I would not be quick to identify myself with that label. Right. Right. In the same sense that people whose perception of capitalism is it's, you know, JP Morgan Chase. I wouldn't be quick to say, yeah, I'm a capitalist, you know, right. and I, I support all that. Right. So, I mean, it's, it, I, I like the term anarchist in theory because I know the history of it and what it's supposed to mean. But as far as I, I try to avoid labels yeah. a lot yeah. of the time in talking with people because labels often put people off who might actually be receptive to the point you're going to make. Mm-hmm. Right? But they hear a label that for whatever reason spooks them, puts up the defenses. And so, you know, I've become more and more reluctant to start dropping labels. Um, That's a good point. Unless someone really knows where I'm, where I'm coming from. Right? Mm. What about you, Peter? As someone who co-executive produced an hour and 45 minute documentary on the history of anarchism. I love um, 
<laughs> that was a good section in the documentary. It was, it was lengthy, and I learned a lot from that part about anarchism. Yeah, that, that was a really good part. Um, I've I don't try to use it anymore. When I do use it, I'm talking more about individual anarchism. If the last eight months has taught me anything, there's not going to be anarchism in my lifetime and the lifetime of any of your kids or your grandkids or your great grandkids. It's just not going to happen. So when I talk about it, I talk more about individual anarchism and that I want to live as an anarchist and I should be allowed to. I should be. Michael Malice says you should be allowed to. Um, change your protection service as easily as you pr- change your cellular provider. Um, yeah. Something yeah. more like um, Max Borders' idea of panarchy, where you can live on the same block with people who, you know, you have a house that's full of anarchists and you have a house that's full of people who are subscribed to some government somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I just don't. As far as an anarchist society, I just. I've given up, given up on that idea. As it far kind of goes along, like it has similar to prepper, right? Like that was a buzzword for a while, you know, maybe five years ago. It's like it was this whole movement that started and the whole industry started around it and servicing the people who were intelligent looking around and saying, this isn't going to last. And then they labeled them. They didn't label themselves. They were labeled the preppers, right? Um, After and, doomsday preppers. Yeah, exactly. And we then, rate your preps two out of 40. Yeah, and so there's this whole subset of people who who got that label put on when they're really just like like Peter and CJ said, just like these are just people who are trying to do their thing and do it without being bothered, um, and not be put in a box and express Mm -hmm. and exercise their liberty, right? Because any sort of group that 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 threatens the state apparatus, they're going to try to paint with a negative brush. Like even the Tea Party. Yeah, when Ron Paul was really the Tea Party, they were sort of the kooks and you know, right. the 11 truthers, right? Truther, 10-third, the 10th Amendment peeps. Yeah, right. Yeah. Any, any sort of group. That Anti-masker they- now is a thing? Yep. Yeah, right, yeah. Except Just for, add ER to the end. The, the only ones that they try to maintain, like, they try to, like, the only terms they try to protect from that sort of uh, taint, tainting is, like, socialists and, and democratic socialists and, and the terms that they that they fall in line with. Yeah. Right. And, and, and yeah, yeah, how did was... socialists become like a good thing, right? <laughs> like that, that's like the, like, yeah, of course we want democratic socialism. And it's like anybody with half a brain would go, no, we don't. That just yeah. goes to show you how, how strong the indoctrination is when they can, they can sort of, you know, ruin the term capitalist, which has lifted hundreds of millions out of poverty and they could yeah. sort of raise up the term socialist, which has killed, you know, hundreds of millions. Rothbard talks about how it's this essay left right and the prospects for liberty. And he talks about the original left right divide. And it was in the French assembly where the left sat the radicals that wanted to overthrow the monarchy. The right sat the conservatives that wanted to conserve the status quo. And he says that the, so there was this classical liberal philosophy, which is the roots of libertarianism. It's also the roots of socialism, although communism is probably rooted in the total authoritarianism. But he says that the socialists took over the idealistic path. They took it away from the libertarians, essentially. And rather than relaxing constraints, which was some of the original classical liberal philosophies, freer markets, not just for the 
you know, the political or the parasitic class, more mobility, a higher standard of living. It was the socialists that took up that banner, which is a good banner, right? Like libertarians often are like private property and we want to protect us from the state rather than selling like the socialists do, like this high, this utopia or more ideal society. And that was a divergence where the socialists kind of had a stronger footing in the minds of men and women. And mm-hmm. the Thomas Jefferson types kind of, and that whole philosophy turned into libertarianism, but it's not as popular as socialism today, probably because government controls everyone and indoctrinates, and they have an interest in promoting socialism and keeping it the sexy thing for everyone to yeah. strive towards compared to libertarianism. I wonder if we can flip that script and make yeah. libertarian sort of uh, freedoms, philosophy of freedom more sexy, more popular. Like, yeah, like, you know, there is a sort of utopian element to that, and we just have to switch what we think of utopia as, like... Is, yeah. how, we, how, we, how are we going to do that when Peter's got his mask on for those of you? Who yeah, how, how are we going to how are we going to do that when this is when this is like the default in many in majority areas? I understand that there are people listening to this who live in the middle of BF fucking E and no one's wearing masks. Congratulations on you and your hundred people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay? But the overwhelming majority of the people are. Okay. Congratulations on your little fucking space out there. Okay. But the majority (laughs) of the people are. Okay. Right. Fucking wake up, people. People don't want liberty. It's dangerous. It's scary. Right. Yeah. They want comfort. And and it comes down to that root fear of like, I'm going to die someday and I'm going to avoid every thought that lets me think of that because I want to be comfortable and be safe. And the truth is, is that who, who was it that said I would take a, a dangerous freedom over a safe tyranny? Jefferson. 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 Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're all on board with that. Then peaceful slavery. Yeah. I think the mask, speaking of the mask, like and showing utopia, again, we're not trying to wake up the masses as we're, we've addressed before. And it is true, like Peter was saying, that people don't want freedom. The bulk of people don't want freedom, which is why the liber- one of the reasons why the Libertarian Party does so terribly. It's because like people want to control other people. But the simple act of not wearing a mask in public and smiling at people, yeah. it is inspirational for some people. And like we've found in business dealings, like me and my girlfriend went to meet with this realtor to talk about buying properties and we show up, it was an outdoor place, but I'm just done wearing the mask in 98% of the instances. We show up to this outdoor coffee shop, no mask. He has a mask on and he's like, is is that okay? We're like, oh no, of course. And then I'm like, are you a handshaker? I put out my hand, homeboy shakes my hand nice and firmly and you could sense a relief in him. Like, oh, I don't have to put on this show and I don't have to put on this front. And so I think the simple act of not wearing a mask as often as possible and smiling at people will bring comfort and it'll show you like, okay, that's one of my people. Sometimes they'll like pull the mask down or at least they'll give you a nod, you know, it's a good way to, I was just thinking about that because we're like, how do we show people our utopia? Well, maybe things are so bad these days. Utopia is freaking smiling. That's the window. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm having an issue with my wife right now because I'm very much like masks are not okay. Like this is not okay for anybody who is thinking for themselves and can examine the evidence. And she's having a, a she's like, how, why are you being so divisive? And I'm like, this isn't divisive. Again, this is like just being and speaking my mind. How could that be so offensive? 
just get on the boxcar. What's wrong with you? Come on, man. Yeah, exactly. And like, and, and as long as those boxcars are owned by private companies, libertarians <laughs> will write glowing Yelp reviews for them. Exactly, and they're comfy inside. I mean, come on, you have like free drinks at the golf at the at the at the bar. Resort. Just to like hit what, what Pete was talking about before, I think he's right. I think the majority of people don't want freedom, so that's why it's so important that we act as individuals and not sort of as members of groups, right? You, you can't free your neighbors, right? You can, you can show a horse the barn door, but you can't make them walk through it, but you can take, you can't take steps in your life to secure your freedom, right? You can't, you can't, you might not be able to convince everybody as to the benefits of sound money, but by saving your wealth in gold and silver and using cryptocurrency, you can take steps to protect yourself from what you as a libertarian know is coming. Or somebody's just paying attention for that matter. So is that is that the end game then? Just prepare for the worst. I think so. I'm not even just prepare, but but Peter's you know, nodding his head vehemently. I mean, that that's where we're at right now, you know. And it, and it's so funny because um, yeah, I, I talked to Curtis Yarvin. Most people know him as Mencius Mulbug, and he was this person who was like ten years ago advocating overthrowing the government. Yeah, I mean, yeah. over like like a coup. Right. And now what he's saying is he's like there is. He goes, this thing is so out of control. There's, you don't know where one, where the tail is. You don't know where the head is. The government is completely decentralized. It's so decentralized that like, if you wanted to overthrow it, what are you going to go at? Right. Where are you, what are you going to do? I mean, so he's like, get out, be neither a dissenter nor a collaborator and get out and yeah. start and ignore it. Well, it, it's a great time to do something new. Right. It's a great time to if, if everything's going chaotic and history is being rewritten and nobody knows which way is up or down. All it takes is like one strong voice and three percent of the population to be like, here's a new path that we can all take. And everybody will be like, please. Yeah. Sal, you were going to say something. Sorry, man. No, no, no. You guys hit the nail on the head. Um, that three percent that you're talking about, that's us. Right. That's the that's the Agoras. That's that's right. hopefully what we're doing here is hopefully to try to, uh, you know, get that done and try to convince everybody. So the great reset, the, the powers that be those in power, the oligarchs, the new world order, the globalists, they are seizing the opportunity and accelerated everything with COVID. They have the agenda 21 agenda, 2030, the great reset from the world economic forum. And then all this technocracy that they're rolling out, which we've talked about in previous episodes. So I think the definitely like I was saying, the play is how do we insulate ourselves from that, how do we navigate and become free, live free in an unfree world? It's a challenge for sure. And, and here's crazy me, like, all right, we're going to build a new system in the middle of all this nonsense. And yeah. We get it together fast enough and quick enough that people recognize the value and maybe put up a good fight. That's the play. I sort of think about it like, do you guys ever remember like when you're a kid and you, you get on a skateboard and you, and you, you're on the skateboard going downhill and as it gets faster and faster, you start like, to, oh, shit. you start to lose control and eventually you fall. That's sort of the way I see the state. And like, as they get more restrictive and more oppressive, right, that, that skateboard starts to wobble more and more. And eventually that angular momentum picks up and you lose control and then the rider falls off. And then at that point you have this sort of collapse of society. Mm-hmm. I think that we're at the point now where we're like violently shaking and it's just a matter of time before that rider mm-hmm. falls off. Yeah. yeah. And it we might- have an opportunity to get on a new skateboard. Yeah, it reminds me of Star Trek. I don't know how many of you guys have watched Star Trek, but one of the movies was First Contact. And, like, the board came, they went back in time, and they went to the first warp drive test that this guy, Zebrin Zebrin Cochran, did. And it was in 2053. Uh, I watched it the other night 
so I, I remember the details now. It was in 2053, 10 years after the Third World War, and the United States was no more. And there was like the Eastern Coalition and the Western faction and all these different factions in the United States, like a balkanized United States. And they were all they all had high technology still. But it was like camps, you know, like hundreds of millions of people died. Nuclear things went off. And it was basically like living in camps. But they were building this warp drive spaceship in an old uh, missile silo in Wyoming. And I've all that has always stuck in my head as like a really likely scenario where all of these rails, like you were saying, John, where the, the skateboard's going so fast, the whole thing, uh, Sal, sorry, Sal, you were saying that, um, the skateboard's going so fast and, he, you know, it falls apart and there, there's still remnants of like the old ride still going on. And I, I see, you know, if I were to, you know, uh, prophesize, I could see that being a scenario where, you know, all of the major powers in the world kind of fall apart, but the globalists who've been running things behind the scenes are planning on that, you know? So if we let it get to that point, it, it's almost like the game's over before it's even started. I think a lot of it's economics. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, Misesian business cycle theory and the central bank just overinflating the currency. And eventually, once once the dollar goes down, all of the other, you know, the, the we're the reserve currency for how many emerging markets. So eventually, you know, it'd be like a, like a, you know, dominoes. dominoes. So that's the way I foresee it, at least. So in, in history, when in like the collapse of the Roman civilization, let's say, how did they pick up the pieces and who did and how did it work economically? Church. Yeah, that was part of it in a lot of places. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of it was just one cause of it, though. Didn't they like want it? Wasn't the church like working behind the scenes to help overthrow the Roman Empire so they could do their own thing again? Well, um, what's his name? Um, who was the emperor who made um, Christianity the official? Constantine. What, Constantine, well, yeah. A, a lot of people think it was Constantine. It was actually a, a later guy who made it the official religion of the emperor of the empire. It was Constantine who just made it allowable and tolerable as coequal. Okay. Yeah, there, there was a later guy. I can't, but, I can't think but, of his name who actually so that was right, the religion, right? That was right around 311 that the whole Constantine thing came into fat, came into fashion where the church would basically, you know, it's like people say, Oh, wh- wh- what happened to the Holy Roman Empire? They're in Vatican City. That's right. Um, they're, they're, they're right there. They just went behind the scenes. Instead, instead of running things on the front, <laughs> they decided it was more uh, cost effective and more efficient to do it from behind the scenes. Put the puppet kings out. And like, that's, that's why I said, isn't there like some tie there? Like, didn't they decide like, Hey, it's better to not run the country, let somebody else run the country and then just run things from behind the scenes, CJ? Yeah. Well, what emerged from the collapse of the Western Roman empire was basically in most places, local warlords. (laughs) That's, that's really what it came down to, you know, and and some of them were barbarians and some of them weren't, but Mm -hmm. you know, part of, part of the story of the collapse of the Western Roman empire is, that the the economy had gotten very specialized and there was a lot of regional um in, interregional trade mm-hmm. and so you know specialization woohoo adam smith you know all that stuff it's great except for when things break down and regions can't really trade with other regions and then suddenly right. oh you got to figure out how to make you know wine Water. in northern europe if you want wine right 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 and um but one of the, and this gets back to, back to some previous episodes. One of the things that happened was because the Roman army had long since become a professionalized 
distinct class of society was no longer had centuries ago had been a militia representing the common people or whatever, but what had become a distinct professional mercenary class um, when when the Roman state collapsed, it was like what localities know how to fight mm-hmm. and defend themselves from the breakdown, right? Um, because when the ability to defend yourself becomes a rare specialized skill, then when that central authority does start to break down, a lot of times who ends up in charge is like the thugs. Yeah. Who in your neighborhood, you know, has the guns and knows how to use them and whatever. And, and so it makes right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And people actually a messy situation. Yeah. Yeah. I got a, I got a heart out now. Take care guys. All right, Peter. See See you. Peace. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, people who are saying we've got to overthrow the system. We've got to change the system. You know, we've got to break it down to rebuild it. It's like they don't really know what they're asking for because there's a lot of chaos there that just it's it's too chaotic. Right. It's like a, the bifurcation all the way down into the bifurcation. There's like just total chaos. Right. It, it, yeah, it's a mess. I mean, if you look at the collapse of the Roman Empire or even more recently at the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Right. As dysfunctional and predatory as those systems were, particularly towards the end, mm-hmm. when they collapse... It was bad for everyone. They, Yeah, I mean, it did cause a... Not everywhere. A few places in Eastern Europe, you know, did okay. But, like, well, if you the look Roman at Russia... Well, the Roman Church did good. Yeah. It, and but, if you, if you think of it as a conspiracy in that regard, where they were like, hey, we're going to stop running the show and let somebody else do it, and it was almost like a consolidation... It's, it was almost like the theory right now that like everything's coming to a head and the people who are in the know know that it is they're consolidating their resources, pulling out of the market and then letting all the people just fucking kill each other. In, in like the case though, like empire collapse, I think it's, it's important to point out that a lot of those places that do worse off, the, the reason why they do worse off is not because of uh, anything to do with voluntary trade or voluntary exchange. It also do with political parasitism, right? Like, you know, Cuba did really poorly when the Soviet Union collapsed. That was because of the Castros. Mm-hmm. If there was free trade in Cuba, then the things would probably be a little bit different. Same thing goes for any um, collapsing state, right? When the, when the U.S. was breaking up in the mid-19th century, all those horrors came from the central government, right? It wasn't because of the individual's trading. It was because of the, the politicians at the time. Yeah. Do you think that... Um the idea, like we were talking about, how do you market a good high-end uh, living situation? Do you th- do you think that there's any place for using fear as a motivator? I think it'll happen naturally, right? People are going to, for example, right now, if you have the option to contract with a private security firm, you're motivated by fear to do that, right? You don't want to work with a police department that, that may or may not shoot you in the middle of the night, right? If you call them because someone broke into your house, you're going to obviously choose the private company that won't shoot you. So yeah. fear is just going to be a sort of natural thing. I mean, if, you, if you're if you asking in a more Machiavellian sense, then... Yeah, yeah, like a moral. Do you have a moral uh, responsibility to not motivate by fear? Because like in our discussions with masks and all of this, it's like, you know, we want to we, we talked about being nice about it and like kind of like living the example and, you know, not hitting people hard with facts or whatever. But is it appropriate to hit people with fear? Like, 
This will continue on into more and more despotism into the point where your families will be carted off into concentration camps if you do not take the vaccine. You know, is that kind of like fear, like appropriate to use? I don't know. I'm asking. You. I don't think it's unethical. Um, it's effective. It's not wrong to do that because it's true and it's helpful. But I do think that coming at things from a place of this is what things can be like. Um, the, you know, this is the ideal freedom, harmony, mm-hmm. human flourishing, uh, higher standard of living for everyone. I think it's, it's better, uh, spiritually, energetically to, to have people get pulled, like CJ mentioned earlier, the push and the pull to pull people towards a higher ideal, I think is better energetically rather than to focus on the fear and stay in that fear paradigm because I'm a big believer in the law of attraction and manifestation. And so if you're focused on the beauty and the decentralized systems and that we'll all be able to live more harmoniously and keep more of our money, that's you're helping to manifest that. But the more you talk about the fear and the new world order and all sorts of stuff. But again, I like the one, two punch. Like I always start with the problem to kind of let people know this is serious business and then offer the solution, the ideal kind of go from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what you have through the steps to take to avoid that. Yep. Yeah. If you, if you look at the psychological literature um, for just like people making major changes in their personal lives and everything to, to improve their life, um, you do kind of need both, right? You need the carrot and the stick. Right. And so, you know, it's it's just finding, depending on your target audience, right? Finding the right balance yeah. of, of carrot versus stick mm-hmm. uh, for that particular audience, and then figuring out how to well, craft you, that message. Yeah. Then you have the issue of like, well, don't give me the stick. I want the carrot. But then, like, are you actually going to move? Are you going to do something when you're when you're shown the carrot, or are you going to just continue on with your same patterns and habits and not actually go after the carrot? You know, uh, I know yeah. I've been I've been uh, that's been me at times in my life, you know, um, and it's almost it, a lot of times, like you said, CJ, people will like at a big crossroads or some big like intervention, like with their families or something like that. They'll that's when they make the change when it's like, oh, I've got cancer and now I got to stop smoking or whatever it might be. It's like uh, sometimes the carrot isn't enough. Oh, I'm getting, I'm going to the concentration camp. Maybe I shouldn't have given given up my guns, right? It's always yeah. after the fact, right? No, I think you make a really good point. Um, I don't know. I, I think at the end of the day, like you, like we said earlier, though, it really just comes down to a matter of leading by example. And I like what John said. You explain to people what could happen, and then you show them these are the steps to take. Um, you know, how many people who are into Bitcoin come from a you know a country where inflation has ravaged the economy? Um, yeah. How many people are gun rights activists because they live in a place where there were no guns, right? Like uh, we all we see them on Twitter every day and, and social media. So, well, the stick got me into Bitcoin, and then the carrot had me develop more of it. You know, it was like, oh, this the the like I, I'm a big prepper. You know, I built my whole life around the fact that oh, all this is going to fall apart at some point, and it gave me the confidence to then say, now what is it that I want? Right. Like I got prepared. I'm good. I feel confident that, you know, I can handle whatever comes now. Like, am I going to sit here waiting for the end? No, I'm going to try to do something to, to stave it off and enjoy my life even more. Right. Okay. I think, you know, in, in the, I think it's the new libertarian manifesto. Konkin tells us to like really, 
I think he says to concentrate on like-minded people. And he, he suggests going after people in like the radical caucus of the LP and like, don't mm-hmm. waste your time on on these sort of Republicans and Democrats because they're so far removed from the agorist message that you're not going to really find much success trying to convince them. So try to stick with people who are already sympathetic to the libertarian mindset. Maybe they're ANCAPs, maybe they're constitutionalists. As long as they fall somewhere within the libertarian spectrum, I think that should really be our our, our target audience. Or that should be our market. Yeah, and like all of the preppers, like the products that came out on that prepper market, like they all did really well because a lot of people are aware and are, are avoiding the care, avoiding the stick. Um, it, it seems to be like a really huge motivator. I just don't think a picture has been painted well enough. And it's incredible for me to say that because we've seen the pictures of dystopian nightmares. We've seen the Mad Max movies. We've seen the zombie apocalypse movies. And yet people are like, oh, let's watch more. You know, heavily indoctrinated. Yeah. I mean, there's a Orwell quote. If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stomping on a human face forever. Totally. And like there's a warning. That guy was fucking off his rocker and he was like. More to what you're saying, X, is like the thing that Orwell got wrong is that, you know, he never, the only thing he got wrong really is that he didn't, he didn't foresee that we would want the cameras there in the first place, mm. right? We would be the ones asking for the cameras there. So putting them in our pockets and in our homes. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's yeah. more like Huxley where people just, they, they love it. They relish in the comfort exactly. and the pleasure of it all. Yeah. One has to wonder if, Entropy is expressing itself at the, at this time for civilization as this, uh, you know, press towards chaos. You know, <clears throat> everybody has to deal with entropy in some way, shape or form. And but how does it manifest? And can we control that? We're all going to die. But can we control our pathway to that doorway? You know what I mean? Isn't that what agorism really is, though, on, on like a more on a very fundamental level? It's just it's just entropy. Right. We're really sort of tending towards chaos, tending towards individual empowerment and this sort of decentralizing force that sort of never stops, right? That's what, that's what cryptocurrencies do. They empower the individual I mean, mm-hmm. in a monetary sense is what 3d printers do. It's what tokenized securities and assets do. It's what all of this technology that we've been discussing does. It's sort of just, like you said, it's just really just entropy at the end of the day. CJ, do you have anything on that? Um, I'll just jump in and say that um, maybe it's one like consoling note or whatever. You know, it's it's easy to get engulfed with New World Order conspiracies and whatever. And, you know, there's something to all that. On the other hand, there's a common thing throughout history where leaders think they're more in control and have things in hand than they do. And it's partly because of the arrogance of the sort of people who seek, you know, to sit on the Iron Throne and wield the Ring of Power and mix all kinds of fictional metaphors together like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I look back at World War I, for example. To me, that's one of the most dramatic cases of leaders thinking they've got shit under control and they know what they're doing and don't worry, we have a plan. And then it right. spirals out of control, right? I mean, most of the dynasty, most of the dynasties that eagerly charged into World War I in 1914 didn't last the war, right? The Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, the Ottomans, uh, the, the, the Tsar, right? All of them went into the war going, yeah, we got this. It'll be over soon. We'll win. It'll be awesome. And their dynasty ended. So yeah. obviously they thought they had everything under control and they didn't. 
And if you want a more recent example of something like this, just go back and look at what the Bush administration said as far as how the Iraq war was going to play out, right? Super easy, barely an inconvenience. It'll be over in a few months. They'll throw flowers at us as liberators. And next thing you know, it'll be a thriving Western democracy and the whole region will probably turn into thriving Western democracies Mm -hmm. out of the example, right? And like literally. Mission accomplished. Yeah. It would, it would cost hardly any money and just a handful of lives and it would go super nice and whatever. And they believe this crap. And look how. Like the opposite of almost everything they said is what happened, right? And, and so that's kind of a consoling thing is that as, as imposing and ominous and threatening as, as the powers that be can be, um, keep in mind too that they're arrogant as hell mm-hmm. and that they often think they've got everything under control and they put their pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us and they're just as limited in their knowledge as the rest of us, right? This is the folly of all central planning. Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. Wonderful. So the big the big takeaways I'm hearing is, uh, you know, live the life that you would want to live regardless of what's going on, right? Be liberty-minded. Be free in your, your behaviors and in your thinking. Um, and when people ask, well, how are you so, you know, happy or joyous? This, this was actually how my wife and I met. She was like, how do you live the way that you live? You, you are so, you know, alive and bright. Um and it was because, you know, I, I, I live what I believe. And if somebody comes at me trying to stop that, I usually just deflect or move aside or whatever. But now I'm getting to the point where there's like not very many places to duck or move aside to. And it's like, where do I stand and say, no, right? We are going to, uh, I am going to live free or die. Right. And, and, communicate that in such a way that's not confrontational, but uh, relatable, let's say, or even inspiring. I think that that's, that's what I would like to, to, to be as a person is inspiring to others and say, there is a good way of living. There is a good way of conducting oneself and we cannot just do it individually, but we can all do it together on the playground of life. Right. Yep. Yep. Live your best life and Tell everybody about it and say it's all because of freedom. <laughs> exactly. It's all because of freedom. Well, I mean, it is a lot of best life kind of stuff is because of freedom, not just political freedom and being free to live your life according to your desire, but spiritual freedom, financial freedom, freedom from chronic health issues, freedom from anger and your emotions controlling you. So I think freedom is a really great value and ideal. And we could point that out in different areas of our life that we're thriving in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately if if we're expressing that and living that, then it'll be self-evident. If those of you out there who are listening are looking for good tactics to address people, I think we came up with don't call them sheep to their face. Um, (laughs) Don't insult them. Bring some of the facts in a way that is appealing. Like you, you have to be like, I saw this great video and there was a news reporter asking this dude, um, like, how can you be out here not wearing a mask? And he's like, I'm a trendsetter. And like that made all the, like it spread like wildfire. And that's the truth. It's like when you are living free, when you feel free, like you are the trendsetter and you're the cool kid on the block and you have to live that embody that. And contagious. People, what's that? It's contagious. It yeah. is contagious especially when you're happy like the reason why everybody listens to you guys uh you know on your podcast and stuff is because people like watching or listening to people who are living their joy right Mm -hmm. 
It's, it's like, I, there's a phrase for it and I forget the name of it, but it's basically like we love, that's why sports are cool because people love watching people do what they love doing. Good point. Yeah. And I think we'll end on that. Like people love watching people doing what they love doing. So really love your life. Take, feel that gratitude for what still freedoms you still have and, and really exercise them like the muscles that you've got. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hong Kong. Yeah, and and don't waste a lot of time playing chess with pigeons. There you go. Because we all know what happens, right? They what is it? They knock the board over, crap all over it, and declare themselves the winner. Oh, Democrats! Jeez. Yeah. Did you say Democrats? Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's kick it off the live uh, CJ, and then thanks everybody for uh, tuning into this episode of Unloose the Goose. Unloose the goose. We'll take no views. Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use.